Bavarian co Falcherugus a Kermach show, Jay Shachle. She Fiona McCardle Nish. I'm Fiona McCardle, and I'd like to welcome you to this programme, Shachle. On Shachle and Hirt Show, this week in Shachle, Liorella and Unson Rish. Another book for us. We hear from academic and author Dr. Jennifer Cooley Draskell about the factual background against which she's based her new novel, Transportee, Lonnon to Jamaica. 1998. As Cochasus and Noem Shirach, Ek George Hobbs, J. Lioran Lochten. As Fissery, the Ahirich, as Scrood, Liorish Sarah Goodwins. Tan Liorella, Cru Jolwin, Trude Foglin. Tan Enemer Chaglum, De Renan, Liorish David Callan, always. As Tan Den, Red Henk, Erdenem, Liorvosh, Machaun Eirhavid. As an achvechliacht a goil in a ren vas skruit liorish Irving Berlin, ons naiki jeg queg asfeed. David Callan's recently published collection of poetry is called Always, and in his poems he looks at people and places in an affectionate, sometimes wry and amusing, and often in a very moving way. David mentioned that if you want to get hold of a copy of Always, which is only five pounds, you should contact him through Facebook. You can also contact David by email. dcallan, numeral 2, bvc, at gmail.com. I'll say that again. dcallan, 2, bvc, at gmail.com. We'll remind you of that again at the end of the programme. Meanwhile, here's David Callan reading that title poem, Always. My father sang always, as though he was handling something delicate something his large hard hands, agricultural, might easily break. So he sang gently, wooing the song politely out of its walled shell. His pitch was imperfect, his ear was fallible, his tenor less than certain, and sometimes this tune skittered like an ungainly beast on too smooth a surface. But he sang on, holding that tune so carefully, a humdrum melody, something like a psalm, an efflorescence of the working day. David Callan and the title poem from his recently published selection, Always. Hi Thomas Wilson, er Herjeriger, mer Aspich de Sodor as man, on shaky jeg shach jeg as kie feed. Ve an Aspich der a shaky jeg queg jeg as died. Ve an Kasler rish pert jane hasbachen slay henk de hanvenik gusen illen lugdower ve court er stol a chari uns more aglish nukarmen er innesferik scorn van a kirtan tredeg thomas wilson in illen uns ne shach blina jegas died shen vena heard jechter in christi seicher moor j thomas wilson as hai chaglum jane a charmen an egger as bay skeel uns de imlior Er clau liorist John Keeble, in sagat as bard van a erdly jailach on Snoxford movement, as da college Oxford emnesit na lug. 
Hugpersunelle wa Erdguach on Siljing Victorianach, Tashen Burdas Falsunach, Matthew Arnold, Moria Elie, the Thomas Wilson. The arrival in the island and the enthronement of Thomas Wilson as Bishop of Sodor and Man almost coincided with another event in Manx history, when, for the first time, a number of prisoners who'd been sentenced to death for felonies, some for what we'd now consider to be comparatively minor offences, and were being held in Castle Russian, had their sentences commuted, and they were to be transported to the plantations in Jamaica instead. Against this background, Dr Jennifer Cooley Drasko has created a story, using the name of one of those dozen transportees, but creating a character and an imagined life for her. Well, I've been interested ever since I read Hampton Creer's Never to Return, which is the tale of Manx felons transported in 1698, which in itself is fantastic and interesting, because this is probably the only time that a ship actually came to the Isle of Man to collect Manx so-called felons, and they'd been locked up in Castle Russian for years, so they'd had a very bad time of it already. And also, Hampton Creer has uncovered the fact that the Liverpool's own records of slavers only go back to 1715. And this is obviously much earlier. This is, this is 17 years earlier, because she was a Liverpool slaver. She could carry 200 slaves. And I always thought that it would be interesting to know what happened to some of those people. And if I didn't know, then I would make it up, because it is a work of fiction. It's very fact-based. I've done research into, well, into the slavers, of course, starting with things like the memoirs of the notorious and rather wonderful Captain Hugh Crow, and, of course, Hampton's book. And I've looked into... once she, she does arrive in Jamaica, which it is not certain that the lady on who she was based did arrive, but she's got to arrive. You wouldn't have a story otherwise. So, clearly, she arrives in Jamaica, and she keeps running away. So, in the end, they get fed up with her, and they brand her as a fugitive transportee on the forehead, and they send her off to the, to the black people. She's got to go live with the slaves, because she's so tiresome, she's proved so difficult and recalcitrant. And so she gets to know a lot about the slaves' lives. The slaves in general are very kind to her because they realise that she's, you know, she's down and out just as they are. She's got not a lot of hope. Even though, to my mind, uh, there are two things that, that always need saying about slavery and indentured servitude. One is that the way they were treated depended very much on the character of the plantation owner and his overseers. You've got people like Thomas Thistlewood, who was a monster. He was a monster by anybody's stretch of the imagination or anybody's measurements. Um, you know, he, he was a real monster. I didn't really believe, although I'd read his diaries, Thomas Thistlewood's diaries, I didn't really believe that he was capable of inflicting such gruesome and wicked punishments. And then shortly after I'd written the book, because Black Lives Matter came up and was very much to the fore and the many programmes on BBC Four run by black people and talking about the experience, Thomas Thistlewood was mentioned and these particular punishments meted out for him were mentioned, so the whole thing is documented. So it depended very much on their character because obviously not everybody was as horrible or callous or inhuman as, as Thomas Thistlewood. But of course the huge difference between the indentured servant and the slave was this. If you survived the maltreatment, if you survived 
probably being raped if you were a female slave, and being knocked about if you were a male slave or anybody. You weren't fed properly. But if you survived that, after a given period, usually it was seven years, you could be free. Slaves couldn't be free. Never. And if any children born to them, and children were born to them because a lot of rape went on and among other things, so children were born to them. But if the children were born to a slave, the children would be slaves. And that was not the case of the indentured servants. And that must have made a huge psychological difference, I think, between the two states. I mean, a lot of the indentured servants died because they were knocked about. And in fact, some scholars have said that the indentured servants were really worked harder in some cases because the slaves represented money. They were a financial, they were, they were prime livestock. That's the way they were thought of, I'm sorry. Whereas the indentured servants, you only had them for a few years, so you might as well get all you could out of them. So, you know, scholars are still arguing about how the two experiences can be compared. I don't attempt to compare them. I just uh, write a fictional story. Because I don't think, I think we, we've been very shy, particularly in, in light of Black Lives Matter, I think we've been very shy of investigating what actually happened to a lot of white people at the time, both in respect of transportees and indentured felons and people in prisons and people in unsatisfactory working conditions and sailors who were the victims of the press gangs. And of course, as you know, they got a bonus for Maxman because the Maxman were good sailors. So if you get a Maxman drunk, get him to take the Queen's shilling, drag him off with the press gang, you probably got a nice bonus for that. Mm. The comparison of the poor white workers on board vessels or wherever they might be working was something that Hugh Crow compared quite unfavorably with the slaves as well. Oh, he did. Well, Hugh, Hugh Crow, I'll be talking quite a bit about Hugh Crow. His memoirs, as you know, are fascinating. I love the fact that he thought they should have diversions, the, the slaves. And so he did various things. I mean, this, this is in public property. It's nothing to do with my book, and it doesn't even come into it. But for one thing, he took a heck of a risk. He taught the Africans to fire guns. And he said they, they showed great glee. He tied a whole lot of bottles to the yardarm, and all these African slaves went and took pot shots at the bottles. And he said they loved doing that. They had great fun. And he never had a slave revolt on his ships, even though he'd familiarized them with firearms, which was a very risky thing to do. But because he was said to be comparatively humane, and he tried to see to it that they got a good diet, and he tried to resist overcrowding. And so, and they even wrote, as you know, a, a sort of song, poem in his honour. And he was very pleased with that and had it published in his memoirs. Um, he didn't, he, I mean, he resisted for a long time becoming a slaver captain. He always wanted to go to sea. And he, he lasted two years as a shipbuilder's apprentice in Ramsey, and these are now going to sea. And he went to sea. And he kept being offered posts on slave ships as a second mate. And he, and he said to himself, I had prejudices against the trade, and he wouldn't do it. And then he said, well, my friends talked me around. And it probably helped that you could make a lot of money if you survived, which they didn't always. Uh, and you had chances of promotion, exactly because 27% of Liverpool slaver captains died. So you have the chances of promotion pretty good, except into dead man's shoes, and it was very lucrative. And one thing he never mentions is that he says he kept his slaves in good nick, which he did. And of course, they made more money that way when they were sold. And he, he doesn't ever mention that he actually got a share of that. So 
Um, maybe there was a bit of a sort of guilt complex going on there as well. But it, it amuses me about his allowing them to use firearms. And sometimes um, he would use them if they picked a battle with the French, which he was always doing. Um, he would use them to fight for the ship and they would do it. Mm. Another interesting thing is that um, other, certainly other slaver captains made trusted African slaves part of the crew. And we know that at least 77 Africans were complicit in the, in, in the slave trade because they were part of the crew of the slaver. Mm. They'd still be sold when they got to the place they were going to go to, presumably, but uh, they, they worked on the side of the slavers, mm. which is quite interesting. I mean, you, people don't investigate these things very much, but I find that very interesting. And he also thought that they ought to be occupied, so he thought, what's a, rather like Lady Bracknell, who, who asks, um, do you smoke? And the fellow says, yes. And she says, oh, good, it's good for a young man to have an occupation. <laughs> um, he provided pipes and tobacco for the men, the male slaves, and he provided beads for the women so they could do bead work. Um, so they had something to entertain them, mm. which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Mm. Mm. Well, the, the dozen, that were, including Joni Lowney, who went on board the Speedwell, they would have gone first to West Africa to pick up a, a, oh, yes. a consignment of slaves. They were, in fact, going to Jamaica. It must have been quite early for the Jamaican plantations because, the, what would it be, 1680s, the British took over? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it was quite early, and after a while, of course, um, the Jamaicans said they didn't want indentured felons and they didn't want women. They wanted nice, young, strong Africans and they couldn't be bothered with all these um, women convicts. They, they wouldn't get have that. But at the time, uh, they were accepted there. And um, not a lot has been done that I know, and I have been trying to look into it, obviously, about um, the convicts who went to Jamaica, whereas, of course, a lot's been done about the convicts who went to Australia. And Matthew Neal, I must say, has just got another book out, which is not about that, but his, his great book was um, English Passengers, which um, features transportation to Australia and is, in my view, one of the best of the genre. But he's he's a brilliant guy. And what he's written this time is going to be really interesting. He's written The Plague Diaries, which is about... Because he's been living in Rome right since the beginning of this. He and his family live in Rome. And, of course, Italy was very hard hit in the beginning by the coronavirus. And so he's he's written The Plague Diaries all about living with the coronavirus in Rome, which is going to be very interesting to read. But um, well, I mean, my heroine is... is um, my protagonist is in Jamaica. She obviously gets to know these black people, as I said before, gets to know about the Maroons, um, the wonderful Queen Nanny, who was one of the um, female warriors of the Maroons. She was a Ghanaian woman, um, said to be able to catch bullets in her hands and also in her buttocks, which she then fired again. But it is suspected that the last was probably British propaganda to vulgarise her image because it was a rather a vulgar image. But uh, she, was, she was a great figure, and there are many representations of her. Um, i just touch on her briefly. And, um, well, I've also gone into some research into the treatment of gays in London at the time. This is important because with the plot, the son of the plantation owner, where my protagonist ends up, turns out to be gay, and he goes out to Jamaica because things are getting very difficult for gays in London. There were a lot of honey traps, there were a lot of raids on so-called molly houses where gays like mm -hmm. to frequent. And 
uh, he realised that it was things were getting too hot for him in London, so he came out to Jamaica. But you'd have to read the story to see what happens there. So those are the two aspects um, that have been interesting to pursue while writing it. Well, of course, you produced your earlier book, Margaret Baldoon. I must say, I found that very much a page turn. Did you? There was so much going on in it, you wanted to find out what happened next. So is it another Pacey story set in Jamaica? My agent said it was very, very gloomy in the beginning. But then it's it's a fairly gloomy subject, isn't it? You know, people being married off at 14 to brutes and um, locked up in Castle Russian chained to a male prisoner um, for ages on trumped-up charges. Mm. And But she uses her brains and she makes... She's quite a feisty little soul. She makes the most of it. Mm. And I think she comes out on top. So I think uh, the whole of life is either a comedy or a tragedy. It just depends when you draw the line, isn't it? If you draw the line on a laugh, then it's been, you know, it's all been worth getting to. If you draw the line on a a gloomy aspect, and then it's been a tragedy. So Mm. I think all life has both elements, doesn't it? With regard to the sentencing, they were sentenced to be transported for a certain period, and we know that people later did serve the sentences and were released or even got pardons before the end of their Mm -hmm. sentence. And yet these dozen who were transported from the island had to take an oath of abjuration, Mm -hmm. never to return to the island Mm -hmm. at all. And also... Um, Dar- Darby had got a bit fed up with having them all in Castle Russian and he wrote a letter in uh, November, I think it was November, December 1697 where he said, I can't be doing with all these people hanging around under sentence of death because they were all under sentence of death, they were all going to be hanged and what they'd done, I mean, Joni, okay, Joni Cowan killed her baby infanticide and there was no sympathy for postpartum depression or anything like that you know, she murdered her baby, that was it but other people, they'd stolen a goose or they'd stolen part of a plough or they'd stolen a lamb, you know, not what we'd regard as capital offence. Well, we don't have capital offence today, but even when we had, back in the 50s, that would not have been a capital offence. And he said, you know, they're all hanging around in Castle Russian and I want a decision made. I want them, you know, get rid of them. Or there is an alternative, if they agree... Um, they can be transported never to return unless they have a specific permission from me to come back and if they have that they can come back and if they haven't they can't it's never to return in order to rid my isle of the disturbance of malefactors mm-hmm. and so they were they were all presented with this they couldn't speak English they were illiterate they made a cross on it and they were carted off to the speedwell interestingly um, I'm talking about Hampton Creer's book and I don't, this is not relevant to my story, so I don't put it in, but I think one of the most fascinating aspects, I'm sure you'll agree, of Hampton's story, of Christian Hampton, is that after she was transported in the Speedwell, um, she had, when she had married his ancestor, she'd been a young woman, and she had a couple of kids already. And when she was transported, never to return, Bishop Wilson had just arrived and he was new in post and we know that Bishop Wilson was a stickler and T.E. Brown tells us in no uncertain terms what a stickler he was and the marriage laws were very strict and uh, Hampton Pierce's ancestor plucked up his courage and he wrote to Bishop Wilson he said I'm left here with this farm and these kids 
and I really need a helpmeet, I really need a wife, can we assume that my wife is never to return and that therefore she is dead to me? And please, can I marry again? And amazingly, and he cudgeled his brains over it, and he also received quite a bit of flack for it, but Bishop Wilson said, okay. And he sent him a letter and he said, you do what you think's best. If you want to get married again, get married again. I give you permission, mm. which was a one-off. It was quite extraordinary. And he did that. And Hampton Greer's relative did actually, ancestor, did actually marry three more times because everybody died in childbed. And his life, last wife became um, Hampton's ancestress. She was a Brideson. Um But I found that fascinating that Bishop Wilson mm. Um, would do that because we know that it caused him a lot of soul-searching. He didn't take it lightly. Um, and a lot of people said, well, what do you want to do that for? It wasn't a very bishoply thing to do. But he did do it. Mm. And so, well, we wouldn't have had Hampton Career if he hadn't. So we must be grateful, mustn't we? <laughs> I don't know about the later development of Jamaica, but obviously you mentioned transportation to Australia, later transportation to Australia. And of course we do know that people worked their sentences, were freed, mm. and then went on to develop very prosperous lives thereafter. Mm. Was that the same sort of situation in Jamaica? Probably in some cases. My story really stops before most of that would have come to pass. I think... Um, my story is very early in the history of certainly Liverpool slavery mm. and also in the, in the history of Jamaica, I suppose. So I haven't really... You tend to focus, you know, you have, you have to limit your focus and particularly when the subjects are so interesting. I find the whole aspect of slavery, indentured servitude, which has been very, very little researched. And when people have researched it, Sometimes there's been a backlash and people have said, oh, you're trying to detract from the terrible experience of the Africans. That's not the case at all. Uh, I would never try to detract from the terrible experience of the Africans and give it due, due credit and due credence. But there is another story. There is the story of what happened to the white people mm. who were transported, particularly Irish people, for example, who were transported en masse by Cromwell. Um, but I don't really go on long enough. You could go on forever finding out what happened to all these people afterwards. And I can't really do that because it would be such a big, expensive book. And as it is, it's going to be a very cheap little book. So <laughs> it'll be all right. Oh, and, and you can get it from the Bridge Bookshop, by the way. Good morning, Dr. Jennifer Cooley Draskow and her new book, launched at a meeting of the Balaf Heritage Trust last Tuesday evening, Transportee. Lonnon to Jamaica, 1698. We're still catching up with events in Shaklay. In January, Culture Vannon announced that this year's Ray Blina Vannon was Peter Kelly MBE, captain of the parish of Onken, and noted for his work in history and architecture, with a wonderful knack of putting that over in his presentations on Manx Radio and with his Magic Lantern shows. We get the chance to celebrate and congratulate Peter on that award in Shachlay next time. Just before we finish, can I remind you of that contact email for David Callan to get a copy of his book of poetry, Always. It's dcallan, numeral 2, bvc, at gmail.com. That's dcallan, 
2bvc at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with David through Facebook. And there we come to the end of Shachle for this week. So from me, Moshe and Vom, Fiona McCardle, Slim you.